Well, welcome to City Light U. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Clay. I work with, well, I work here at City Light with the college ministry. So uh, we are going to pick back up this week on, in the book of Hebrews, okay? We've been walking through this semester through the book of Hebrews, uh, and we're here at about mid, the midway point in chapter 7. Uh, and so uh, the, this, this, we've talked about this book as it's, a, it's basically a letter that was written as a sermon to a group of, or the, the nation of the Hebrews, which is how it kind of got its title, Hebrews. Okay, and so the author put this together as a, as a sermon with one main point leading up to, as a series of arguments up to one kind of full picture of who Jesus is and why we should endure in Jesus. If he had one primary argument with this book, with his sermon here, it's, it's a call for the nation of Israel, the, the Jews that are now find themselves following Jesus. They're experiencing loss in many ways. They're experiencing loss with their families, uh, with their, their Jewish culture, with societies. They're no longer invited to the Jewish festivals. The, uh, many of them would not be able to trade in the market. Their families would disown them. There's a lot of loss that they're experiencing with following Jesus. And so what the author is calling them to over and over in this sermon is to endure, to hold on to their faith, to not fall back into their old patterns, not fall back in their old system of living, but instead to hold fast to Jesus and endure. And he does it with this repeated rhythm that he has over and over of Jesus is greater. That's why we kind of titled this series, Jesus is Greater, uh, that Jesus is greater than all these old things of your past that you let go of in order to follow him. That when you have these, you have a message from God in your past, but Jesus is the greater messenger bringing the message of full reconciliation. That you have these, these old leaders in your past, but Jesus is the greater leader that's actually able to lead you into the full rest because you have this rest that's promised in the Old Testament but actually just is meant to point you forward to the, the only one who can provide rest, which is Jesus. So that rest is greater, the rest he offers. That the old, uh, the old covenant has this priesthood, and these priests set up to intercede for you. They would, they would intercede uh, to God on your behalf. They would offer sacrifices for you. But that Jesus, and this is what Josh preached on about three weeks ago, that Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's the high priest who can sympathize with our needs. That uh, he, he is tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. So he's, he's experienced it to the end and is able to sympathize, yet knows how to lead us out of it. And, and what that passage ends with is that he's a priest of a, a full different priesthood uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's the first men, mention we have of this guy, Melchizedek. And then McGill preached a couple weeks ago where he has this kind of interruption where he goes, I, the, the sermon kind of goes, I wish I could teach you about Melchizedek. Like, I, wa- I want to tell you about this guy, but you become slow to hear. You become dull of hearing. You're, you're not paying attention. You're choosing to overlook things. You're not pursuing God. You don't want to press on. And so I'm not able to tell you about Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, where I'm going to pick up, he talks about Melchizedek. So I don't know what he was thinking there, uh, but he just kind of goes for it anyway after saying that I probably can't talk to you about this. I wish I could, but I can't, so I will. It doesn't really make much sense, but this is the Bible, and so it's smarter than me. So it has authority. Um, and so we're going to be looking at this character, Melchizedek. 
Uh, this is going to be kind of a fun sermon for me because the, the whole idea surrounding Melchizedek is, is, is fascinating because we know so little about them. Like he's this mysterious guy and it's almost like ridiculously mis- mysterious when you look at the Old Testament passage of him. And then the author in Hebrews chooses to like write the biggest portion, this biggest unbroken section of the book on this guy that has like four Old Testament verses. And so I love this, this kind of, that he throws back to Melchizedek. Uh, and so we're going to see him do this, this pattern again of that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek or in Melchizedek, as we'll see. Uh, so we're going to first read by, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. But before that, we're going to go back to Genesis 14, where it talks about Melchizedek, and read all that it has to say on him. So... Genesis 14, I think I have it on the screens if you didn't bring your Bible, uh, and you can also go there on your phone. And so, context. Abraham just finished, like, his first major conquest. Like, he just went, and he, and he went and brought these captives back from these cities. He's defeated these kings, completely defeated them, plundered them, and he is now coming back like a, a full-blown hero. So this is like the first kind of inkling we see of Abraham being like the guy. So you can picture him like walking back into the camp. He's still like war-torn, looking like uh, the, the hero of the story, leading the captives to freedom. And it's that context where we see this. And it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abraham, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So that's it. That's all we know about this guy. Like, there's no more background I can give you on him. I don't know anything else about him. Like, he just shows up. Like, then Melchizedek came. You know Melchizedek. And he came and he said to Abraham, and he, and he blessed Abraham, brought him bread and wine, and blessed him. Which, and when we think of blessing in this culture, it's not like, uh, hey, I'm going to bless you by praying for you, like I'll pray for you. It's like a superior saying, like, I, I deem this blessing on you. I, as your superior, grant you this. So Melchizedek comes and grants him a blessing. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Like, no more mention. Like, who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? Why did Abraham give him money? Where did he come from before this? Where's Salem? Wait, how is he a priest? There's there's no priesthood mentioned here. Abraham tithes to him, and there's no tithing system set up yet. Like, what in the world is going on? Like, who is this guy? And so we we actually know nothing. And and I'm going to argue, and the, the author of Hebrews argues that the, the kind of the obscurity and the mystery kind of surrounding this guy is actually there intentionally. That we believe that, so at Selite, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So God chose and brought in people that he chose to write, and he used their personalities and their past experience to write the Bible. And he, and he intervened with his spirit and inspired what they're going to write and guided them in their writing to make sure that what they wrote is exactly what he intended them to write. So we believe that it is the inspired word of God. And so not only is this a recording of an actual interaction that happened, but God had his hand in the way that it was recorded to bring about a certain result. 
So God's not only sovereign over what goes in the Bible, but how it's even written about in the Bible. So this is why here we, we come up every day and we preach the Bible. Like we're going to put the scriptures on the screen. We're going to encourage you to open it up because the Bible is the authority of this is what God has communicated. So we can all interact with God in our daily lives, but we know for sure this is what God has communicated to his people. And so this has authority over what we do. We believe that every word in there is true and intended by God. And so uh, what, I'm, what the author of Hebrews argues is that's how we look at the Old Testament. That the way he wrote about Melchizedek, the way the vagueness and the mystery was actually intentional to get our eyes open and looking for something. Because mystery has this like tendency to draw us in. We're all attracted to mystery. And so like, if, so like the first time I saw my wife, or the woman that was going to eventually be my wife, was not actually in person. Okay, I was in high school, and there were these, like, these pamphlets going around where it was like pictures of things you could buy with like your high school memorabilia on it. So it was like this, this purple sweatshirt that said Blair Bears on it, because I'm a Blair Bear. Uh, and then, yeah, whew, right? And uh, there was a hat and something else, and it was like this stuff. And this, there was a, a girl modeling it, Right? And so my, my interest was piqued. So I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, who, I don't know who this is. Who, who is this girl? I've never seen her before. And, there, and apparently it was some new girl that just arrived at school. And so I'm thinking, I must meet this new girl. I need to find, I need to find out about this new girl. I need to figure out, like, what's her story? What's her background? Is she dating? Like, I don't know any of this stuff. Uh, and so uh, the interest, the, the mystery kind of surrounding her of I don't know who this is piqued my interest and I wanted to kind of pursue to find out who that was. I started asking around about her instantly. That was not the only thing that piqued my interest, but that was one of the things is the mystery surrounding her because mystery has a way of kind of drawing us in. Like we like to think about things that we don't yet know and, and kind of ponder and figure them out. Like in the office, we'll get in these conversations, even ones like, who is Melchizedek? And you'll start to see people just slowly get sucked into the conversation until everybody's in it because we're drawn to these mysteries. Like we want to look into them. We can hardly have a, a, a nice dinner or lunch without Googling something on our phone, right? Hey, Siri, what, who is Melchizedek? Like we want to know these mysteries, Right? We'll go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. Who's Melchizedek? What's the priesthood of Melchizedek? Like, we'll go, we want to find these informa- this information out because mystery has a way of drawing us in. So I think this mystery was intentional in trying to draw us in. And so when we read that, we ask things like, who was it? Why did Abraham pay him? Why did he have the right to bless Abraham? Where did he come from? Who appointed him? What city? He's a priest of the Most High God. How'd that happen? Like all these questions are meant to pique our interest and, to, and what the author of Hebrews says, it's meant to cast our eyes forward so that we're able to recognize a future priest and a future priesthood that comes in the same way. That Melchizedek is actually a type of Christ pointing forward to Christ. And we'll see how he does that in the first verse of chapter 7. So if you want to turn with me there, that's where we'll be. Hebrews uh, 7.1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And said to Abraham, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. 
He is the first, and he is first by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then he's also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. So his, his name is uh, Melchizedek, which is king of righteousness. And then he is the king of Salem, Salem meaning peace. So king of righteousness, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither the beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So I read that passage, and now we've got more verses on Melchizedek, and I think I'm more confused. Like, what, what in the world does it mean that he, I mean, he's king of righteousness, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy. He, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, and he is a priest forever. Like, who is this guy? Like, what's going on? And so what I think the, the author is doing, and this, this passage, particularly the last one, uh, that he's without father, mother, he's having neither beginning of days nor end of life, that all, this is the verse that, mo, that many people are led to believe that it is actually pre-incarnate Jesus. That before Jesus was born on earth as a baby, he stepped into history, being outside of time, stepped into history at this moment to bless Abraham and receive a tithe. There are people smarter than me that believe that this was the pre-incarnate Jesus. I'm not as convinced, mainly looking at the the first word on the last line there, resembling, that he's resembling the Son of God. Seems to imply that he's not the Son of God, but it's meant to pique our minds and pique our interest in the Son of God. So what what I think is he's pointing to here, regardless of which, which view you take, what he's pointing to here is that what is true in record for Melchizedek is true for Jesus in a much more real and literal sense. So in Melchizedek, we don't have any of his background information. We have he's a priest of the Most High God, but we don't have a genealogy proving that. We don't even know what it means that he's a priest of the Most High God because there's no Levitical priesthood. Like, there's no priesthood yet to be set up for him to be a part of. So he's a priest before priests exist. He receives a tithe before tithes exist. Like, what is going on with this guy? We know nothing about him, and, and he just steps on to the scene with the authority to bless and receive tithes. Similarly, we have Jesus who steps onto the scene and carries with him an authority that's not through his earthly genealogy. He's appointed a priest forever, not by birth. He's not from the, the tribe of Levi. His dad wasn't a priest, and so he gets to go into the priesthood. But God ordained him as a priest most high. That he has no, uh, as Melchizedek, it doesn't record his start of life or his end of life. We don't know what got him to this point, and we don't know how long he was a priest afterwards. So as far as we're concerned, he's a priest forever, right? We don't know. And what's true in record for Melchizedek is true in a much more real, literal sense for Jesus. Because Jesus is a priest forever. He died and then rose again in order, and now sits at the right hand of God as our perfect high priest, as Josh said, Josh said a couple weeks ago. A priest forever, forever interceding for us. So what's true uh, in record for Melchizedek is true in a much more real, literal sense for Jesus. That This is meant to pique our minds so that when Jesus comes on the scene, we recognize that this is the guy we've been waiting for. And so... Uh, Yeah, he resembles the Son of God. So the vagueness and mystery that is meant to resemble Jesus, Melchizedek prefigures Jesus and lets us look for Jesus. 
So the case that the writer of Hebrews is making kind of just flows right into this in that all of the Old Testament books, including Melchizedek, is meant to point us forward to Jesus. Like what the author is doing here for Melchizedek is what we need to be doing for the whole Old Testament, that, uh, that all of the messengers, all of the priesthood, all of the Levitical system, all of the sacrifices, all of the leaders, all of the kings are meant to point us forward and find their culmination in Jesus. And so as we have Melchizedek pointing forward to Jesus, it follows the same flow of Melchizedek is, of, is part of this greater priesthood than Abraham, than Levi, and Jesus is a part of that priesthood. And that's where he goes here in the next passage. Uh, and so what, what we would see at this time, if we were Jews, like, like this means almost nothing for us, right? But, it, but the fact that he blesses Abraham is gigantic. So let's read about this. Uh, let's continue. Where are we at? I'm sorry, I got distracted. Oh, verse 4. See how great this man who was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And to those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office and have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these also are descended from Abraham. So this man who does not have his descent from, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So you see the case he's building here. That Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, right? It, Melchizedek walks onto the scene. He, with authority, grants a blessing to Abraham, and then Abraham pays him a tenth of everything. That shows that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, so to the Jews hearing this, they're thinking, okay, that's a big claim. Because Abraham wasn't just some guy in the past to them. He was the father of their nation. He was their guy. He's the guy that started it all. Like he's the, he's the king, he's the leader of all of us. God, his, every promise we're experiencing started with God's promise to Abraham. He's the beginning of it all. And somehow there was a priest ordained as a priest before him that comes on the scene and supersedes him in blessing. Like this would have blown their mind. They would have been uncomfortable, not like this idea that who is this guy that came out of nowhere and blessed the beginning of everything? Like how does that happen? And he continues, And in one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So like his case is like, he's better than Abraham, and he's better than Levi. So Levi is the first priest. If you're going to be a priest, you've got to descend from Levi. That's the way it was. And God ordained that, that all priests uh, come from Levi. But Melchizedek is this priest that existed before Levi even existed, right? So Levi's daddy's daddy's daddy daddy tithed and was blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek supersedes all of this priesthood. So the Jews at this time are, are uncomfortable. They're pushing back. They're saying like, okay, like hold on. God's plan was that the priesthood comes through Levi. How can we have a priest that doesn't come through Levi? Like I almost picture them like holding up their Bibles and it's like, Show me that this is supposed to happen. 
Like it looks like God's changing his mind here. It looks like God's doing away with the priesthood. Show me that this new priest is supposed to arise. Because Jesus didn't descend from Levi. How, is, how can Jesus possibly be the priest? And the argument that the, the author of Hebrews makes is that this was always God's plan. God always was going to supersede the Jewish line. And he starts by going to Psalm 110. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll have it up on the screen because we're going to go back to Hebrews 7. But Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm of David. So it's, it's, it's a psalm that's pointing forward to the future king that's going to come and reign. The first verse of this is actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. So it constantly, they go back to this psalm over and over. And in this psalm, Melchizedek, though it's not history recording of him, he does get a shout out at the end of it. So I'm going to read that for you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's talking about Jesus the Messiah. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. God has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now if that, the first three, like couple verses we have on Melchizedek wasn't like mystery invoking enough, like all of a sudden we have that the future king is going to be from the line of Melchizedek, a whole new priesthood, which is going to be like making them scratch their head because we don't know anything about Melchizedek. Like, like if, I'm, if I'm in here and I say, raise your hand if you're a descendant of Melchizedek. Like, how would we know that? Like, nobody knows anything about Melchizedek. Nobody can trace their lineage back to Melchizedek. But yet our future priest is going to come in the order of Melchizedek, that's what the author of Hebrews points to. So we're going to be in verse 11 now, back to Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I'm going to read that again. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one who these things are spoken belong to another tribe, that's Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is the evidence that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe that Moses said nothing about priests. And this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, whom has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness. The former law, the former Levitical priesthood is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the author is holding up the Levitical priesthood, saying that perfection can never come through this. It's never going to make things right. And God always intended for something to supersede it. Like God's plan A from beginning, from before he made any promises to Abraham... Was Jesus coming on the cross? 
was Jesus offering himself up as our perfect sacrifice, ushering in his perfect priesthood. Jesus was God's plan A. So when God gives us the law, when God gave the Jews the law, these sets of rules that they need to live by, these sacrifices they need to do, it was never meant to be the means by which they relate to God. It was never meant to bridge that gap. The other scriptures say that the law was a teacher. If, any, if the law does anything, what it does is it reveals your inability to actually perform well. The law brings about an awareness of our sinfulness. Like it, it shows us that we're, it's the diagnostic tool that shows us we're unable to make it. So if you think about like the, the law is like our MRI machine, right? It, sh- it scans our bodies and it shows us what's going on internally. It shows us where we're, where we're broken and messed up internally. That's what MRI does. It scans your insides. And when you find a problem, what you don't do is, is say, just run me through the MRI machine a couple more times so I can be healed, right? You don't, run, you don't like break your arm, get an x-ray, and then they say, yeah, your arm's broken. Look, right here. The x-ray revealed it. And then say, man, give me another x-ray. Fix it. Like, right? Like that's not how it works because it's just a diagnostic tool. The law was our teacher. The law was our diagnostic tool. It was never a means to bridge the gap uh, between us and God, but it was meant to show our need for that future Savior to step in. It was to show our future need for Jesus to step in. So we needed that priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. We needed that new priesthood. Because what Jesus ushers is not just like, like God doesn't invite you in to come clean yourself up. He's not a new Levitical priest that's offering a new Levitical system. A new Old Testament priest that's going to tell you a new, like, new 10-step program that you need to do in order to relate to God properly. Because what it says is that when there's a change in the priesthood, there necessarily is a change in the law as well. Jesus brings in an entirely different law system. We no longer interact with God on the basis of what we do and our performance in that and what we don't do and our ability to obey that. We don't relate to God through this old Levitical system of rules, but instead we relate to God, we draw near to God, as the text says, based on what Jesus has already done. Because Jesus can perfectly satisfy what, God, what we need to pay off. The law makes nothing perfect, is what the text says. And Jesus makes us perfect, holy, blameless, spotless. Jesus doesn't, like, you're not invited in to come just clean your life up. That's not what we're doing here. Jesus has not asked you to just move some stuff around in your life and fix those problems. Like, that's, I mean, I I feel it. That's my default. Like, I want to just kind of tweak some things and change some things about my life. And if I can just get this part of my life under control, if I can just avoid this area, all of a sudden, there, I'll, I'll have it under control. Then I can relate to God properly. But what Jesus is calling for is a complete overhaul of how we relate to God. So like, uh, I was trying to think of illustrations for this. And yesterday I was in, I was working out at Hyper. And there was this guy that was, was over and over with repeated attempts trying to do a muscle up. So if you don't know what that is, you start hanging from like a pull up bar. And you kip up and down and you, you get like up here on the bar. And so this guy was going to town at it. And no matter how hard he tried, he was not anywhere close to doing a muscle-up. 
like nowhere close at all. So he's, I mean, he is like ripping on the bar, doing like multiple pull-ups. He's swinging and kipping and fighting, like he's going nuts. And then he drops and paces for a while and then gets mad and then he jumps up and tries to do it again. Nowhere close. Because with a muscle up, you've got to figure out how to get your wrist from below the bar to on top of the bar. So no amount of like contorting of your body is going to get you from under the bar to on top of the bar. Like he needs to have completely changed his entire approach. And so I find myself falling into this same mentality over and over. Like I need to completely shift and radically change how I view my relationship to God and the basis I relate to him. But instead I somehow feel like if I just pace around a bit and jump back up there and fight hard, that I'm going to fix my life. That I'm going to relate to God properly if I just keep, if I get angry enough and I grit my teeth and I get it. But it takes a complete or, like reorientation on how we relate to God. God looks at, like God knew what he was buying when he purchased you. Like he completely knew what he was buying and he purchased you anyway. Like all your sins were future sins when he died and he knew what he was getting. You no longer relate to God on that basis. He, he was a, he's a priest forever, always interceding for you. We're going to go on to the final uh, portion of our text here. Verse 20 is where we're at. And it was not without oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. This, is, this oath is talking about the promise of God that he made. Those formerly became priests were with such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This means like when this is a legal term, like when Jesus signs the on the dotted line at the bottom of our promise. Like Jesus is the signer there. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the other uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, completely not sinful, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the promise of God, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus' priesthood is an eternal one which gives us full confidence and full assurance because he's the guarantor, the one who signed the document of our promise. So this, this priesthood of Jesus was before any other priesthood was, was to come into being. They planned on Jesus coming and then that God carefully orchestrates throughout history to bring this plan to full fulfillment, to perfect completion in Jesus, making a way for us to relate to God. Like this elaborate plan of God was up to this point to bring us this point, and then Jesus lives forever. Always, he's uh, he's always lives to make intercession for us. Like he's continuing to make intercession for us. Like Jesus is the guarantor 
the guarantor, that's a new word for me, sorry, guarantor of our promise. God knew what he was getting when he purchased you and purchased you anyway. So a lot of times I find myself asking the wrong question. So one of the questions I constantly will kind of come back to is, um, how many more times do I get before I mess up one too many times? How many more times do I mess up before God just goes and finds somebody else? Before God finds somebody that's not going to struggle in the way I am? For God, for God's going to find a guy that doesn't have the weaknesses I do, that's just better at me than these things? Like how many times do I need to, to fail before God just kind of throws up his hands? Do I get one more chance? Maybe, maybe not. What we see in this passage is that's, that's the wrong question. The right question is, is God's promise still good? Is Jesus still interceding? And we have a priest who lives forever, so the answer to those questions is yes. Jesus is always there as the guarantor of the promises of God. That When he says he made a way, when he says it's paid in full, that includes anything you're going to do as well. Any mess-ups that are still coming, any mistakes you're still going to make, God knew what he was purchasing when he bought you. And just as Jesus is alive now as your guarantor, he will still be alive interceding for you then. He is still your intercessor. He's still at the right hand of God, your perfect payment. There is no mistake you can make that's going to outdo the grace of God. There's no question that comes of, of, is this the last time? How many before he gives up on me? Is Jesus faithful to his promise? Is God faithful to his promise? Is Jesus still the guarantor? Did Jesus know what he was buying? Yes. Forever, yes. This assurance is offered to us now and eternally that Jesus promises to be our mediator before God, our perfect high priest, always drawing us in, always inviting us in, always drawing us near to God. And he exists for that purpose. Like he always exists to make intercession for us. That's what he's there for, to draw us into God. One more mistake is not going to lead us away. So why in the world is what he's getting here? Why in the world would you want to go back to your old system of living? Endure. Why would you want to go back to the old priesthood where you've got to offer up sacrifices? It's about what, what can I lay down? It's about how, how do I relate to God? What things do I need to get in check in order for God to be pleased with me? What areas do I have to make sure I don't stumble and fall or I gotta sacrifice, I've gotta give something up, I gotta make it up to God, I gotta keep my distance and pray a certain amount before I can go to him? Like, why would you wanna go back to that mode of operation? Why would you wanna go back to wondering whether or not you're performing well enough? whether you need one more sacrifice. Jesus has made that sacrifice once and for all. This is what's offered to you in God as a whole new priesthood, one that always invites you into God. Why would you want to return to that? So, so for some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing this. Like you may have come into this room trying to clean up your life. Like I just want to get this church thing in place, get my school in place, get my finances in place, get my life together, and then I'm good. I want to come here and try to be a better person. I want to kind of, you know, take what I can and just kind of change a little bit. Like, you're missing the point. Jesus has not invited us in 
in order to, to change a few things and move some stuff around in our life. He's invited us in for a complete overhaul of how we relate to God. He offers salvation in himself. That he will pay the debt that you've incurred for your rebellion. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. We have fallen short of his perfect standard. And he has lived his perfect life in our place. He took on the punishment we deserve so that we may receive the blessing that he deserves. When he died on the cross, he made the exchange for us that we may have full unity and perfect relationship with God. And that we may constantly be pressed into God and that he is constantly beckoning us closer and closer. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to bring about. He didn't come to just change some things in your life to make you a better person. He came to make you clean through his death, to invite you in a new way, into a new way of relating to God. This is what he's offered. If you're a Christian here, you've accepted that, but you're probably like me where you see these areas where I just fall back into my old system of living. Like I can't figure out, I can't stop being so hard on myself. I just, I constantly do that. Or I can't get this one thing under control and so I'm just going to try to hide it. I'm going to try to push it away. I'm going to distance from God until I get this taken care of. Then I'll press back into the community. Like what, what is offered to us in Jesus is much better than that. It's much better than trying to be a better person so that God likes you. That God knew what he was purchasing and he looked on you in love before the world existed. Before he chose anybody, he looked on you in love saying, yeah, you're worthy to die for. You don't need to win over that type of God. He already paid for that and he beckons you in. Don't revert to these old ways of relating to God that I need to perform a certain way. I need to get these things in line. Like God invites you to press in. He'll do some changing in your life. He'll absolutely do some rearranging. But ultimately, his call on you is to believe, to enter in, to draw near, and allow him to change you from the inside out. So whether you're Christian or not, the the call is to press in towards God, knowing that Jesus has made a way, that he is your high priest, he is your your system in which you relate to God. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll let the band come up. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for what you recorded to us, that you, that you desired to, to speak to us so clearly in a way that you wrote it down, that we may all have it, that we can always go back, we can reference it, we can let it wash over us, we can continually reference it over and over again. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you wrote in it that, it, that brings us into greater revelations of you, that we see you more clearly each time we study it. And so, Lord, fix our eyes on you. I'm so tempted, and I know many of us here as well are tempted, to fall back in these old systems of relating to you before we ever heard this message. That we try to perform well enough that you like us, or we use you as a means in order to, to become better people, but that misses the whole point. Uh, and so, Lord, we just let, lay that down before you. Let us know what it looks like to draw near to you. Invite our hearts in, invite our eyes up, grab hold of our attention, soften our hearts, and let us just rest in the rest you provide, knowing that you've made a way. Let us press into you in delight, that anything that changes in our life is at a pure delight of pressing into you, that it's just stripping off weights that lead us 
that keep us from knowing you better. So Lord, beckon us in. Call us in. Uh, we, every hour throughout this week, God, I ask that you remind us of this. That you're calling us closer to know you better. That nothing we can do outweighs your grace. But that you knew what you were buying and that you delighted to pay for it with your own life. That we're worthy of that. And so please just continue to work that into our hearts that we can never untie it from what's going on in there. So we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.